Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. comes from Luke 1, 46 to 55, and it's entitled Mary's Song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here this morning. My name is Mike Clamey, if you don't know me. Um, I'm from the PM service. Um, which is soon to be the the late afternoon service, moving to 5pm. And yeah, it's great to be here this morning um, and to be able to um, talk about Mary's song. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk about um, Mary. Um, Mary's a biblical character, I think, who we often overlook. Um, And today we have the opportunity um, to, to explore her song and what she's got to say about her pregnancy. So before we get into things, just want you to turn to the person next to you and complete this sentence. Christmas is a time for dot, dot, dot. Christmas is a time for what? All right. Thank you, everybody. What I'm imagining is that your partner said something like, Christmas is a time for family, or Christmas is a time for joy, or Christmas is a time for celebration, or the very, this very spiritual among us may have, some, may have said, Jesus is the reason for the season, or something like that, which of course is very true. These are all great things. But did anyone say Christmas is a time for revolution? No, (laughs) I didn't think so. Um, And it's not surprising because our over-familiarity with the Christmas story can make it seem really quaint. Um, You know, the the plays that kids do um, at Christmas services are great. Joseph, he wears an old dressing gown. Mary carries her little plastic doll. The adults clap along politely and everyone feels sorry for the poor kid who ends up as the donkey. (laughs) But today I'm going to make a big claim that Christmas is all about revolution. And what I mean by that is not, you know, some big violent upheaval. I mean it's about big changes. 
So there's not going to be any guillotines today, thankfully. So don't worry. So we're looking at the very first, what you could say is the very first Christmas carol in Luke 1, 46 to 56. It's Mary's song of praise. And her song sounds not really much like our sentimental kind of Christmas carols. It's more like a protest song or something like that. Of course, I know it's not exactly like something out of Bob Dylan or Pete Seeger's songbook, but it does have this kind of revolutionary quality to it, which we can't overlook. We're going to see that Mary's song sounds a clear trumpet call that her, her pregnancy is the beginning of a world-transforming, universe-shaking event. This is what Bonhoeffer said about Mary's song. He wrote, The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song is a hard, strong song about collapsing thrones and humble lords of this world and the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. It's a great quote. So we're looking at Mary's song, but before we dive in, we need to just quickly have a look at the context which Luke locates Mary's song in to really grasp the revolutionary force of her song. So let's summarise what's happened so far in Luke's gospel. In verses 5 to 25, Gabriel appears to John in the temple, and sorry, to Zachariah in the temple, and announces John's birth to him. Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, has been barren, and she's quite old, it says, but Gabriel promises a son to them. And what happens is Gabriel doesn't believe um, the angel, and so he's muted until this birth occurs. And then in verses 26 to 38, Gabriel appears to Mary, and a son is also promised to her, who's he's meant to be called Jesus. And the angel says he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary believes Gabriel when, um, when Zachariah didn't. And finally, in verse 39 to 45, Gabriel shares this news of Elizabeth's pregnancy to Mary. And immediately, Mary gets up and she goes to visit Elizabeth. She goes on this arduous journey to Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth hears Mary greeting her, the child in her womb, that being John, leaps. It's quite amazing. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She intuits, um, well, I guess the Holy Spirit tells her that Mary is pregnant with the Lord. And she blesses Mary because she has been chosen to be the mother of God and because she has believed the word of God to her. And so then in the story, we come to Mary's song. Mary responds 
to Elizabeth's blessing immediately by shouting this joyful, spontaneous song of praise to God. And she begins in verses 46 to 47 saying, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. That's great, but like you sort of can't help but wonder what actually justifies Mary's praise in this um, at this point. On the face of it, it's not really obvious why Mary reacts so positively to the situation. Sure, God's pulled off this amazing pregnancy and it's going to be connected to um, the Messiah in some way. But this pregnancy would have also brought upon her a great deal of social shame. In fact, in this culture, when women in Mary's situation um, got pregnant, they faced severe retribution from the community. And, you know, I doubt, oh, you know, my, my pregnancy was a miraculous uh, gift from God would really cut it with her friends and family. So why does Mary praise God? Well, Mary knows that something bigger is at play with her pregnancy. Gabriel explains to her that her son will be called the Most High, whose kingship would never end. Mary takes from this that her conception, her pregnancy, has set in motion a decisive work of God. And then in the rest of Mary's song, what she does is she explains why she rejoices. She interprets her pregnancy and explains to us what it means. She explains how she sees God working in this miraculous and strange pregnancy that she's experienced. And Mary tells us that her pregnancy is going to bring amazing, miraculous revolution. It's going to turn the world upside down. And that's what we're going to explore today. So firstly, we're going to see how this revolution is germinated in really humble circumstances. It starts with Mary and her pregnancy brings to her personal revolution in her own life because God has chosen to involve her in his plans. And then we'll see that this revolution spreads to her community, to Israel. God is also bringing revolution for Israel through her pregnancy. And so her song celebrates this God who is going to deliver Israel from oppression. But we'll see that it's an unexpected deliverance that comes. And then finally, we'll see that the revolution, it moves out from Israel and it overtakes the whole world. So let's walk through Mary's song. Let's see what she sings about her pregnancy. Are we ready? Are we ready to hear and learn from this first century teenage girl? So first, let's look at the revolution that God brings to Mary's life. So in verses 48 to 49, Mary explains her reasons for praise. She says, for he, that being God, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. 
Holy is his name. So Mary is celebrating God's actions in her own life and declaring that God has brought revolution to her status through her pregnancy. And so to comprehend the extent of this revolution that God brings to Mary's status, in verse 48, Mary gives us a clear view of her place in the world. She is lowly, she says. How so? Well, firstly, she's part of the Jewish nation, which has been conquered by Rome. She's part of an oppressed people group who's under the boot of this big bad empire. And we'll look at that in more detail later. And then she's also from a small little village called Nazareth, which was an obscure backwater in the, on the fringes of the empire. It's a bit like if you come from Kaman too. No offense to people from Kaman too. Um, but Nazareth has only about 300 people living at, living at it in this point in time. And they're people, they're peasant people living these simple farming lifestyles. And so in the eyes of the Romans, Mary is nothing. A Jewish girl from this random little village in the middle of nowhere. But Mary would have also been considered lowly in the eyes of her fellow Jews. At the time of her pregnancy here, she's only 14 to 16 years old, most scholars think. She's really young in a time when age was honoured. She's also a female in an extremely patriarchal society in which women were often considered to be the property of men. And finally, it's really interesting how Mary's introduced in this chapter by Luke. We're told that all the other characters are descended from these important lineages. So Joseph is from David. Zachariah is a priest um, of, from Abiah. Elizabeth is from Aaron. But Luke doesn't mention really any um, family background for Mary, other than that she's Elizabeth's cousin. So it doesn't seem like she's from some prominent family. She didn't grow up with the silver spoon. So Mary can't make any claims for honour in her culture. She's right down the very bottom of the social hierarchy. She's a nobody. But Mary tells us that she has undergone a startling change or revolution in her status. In the next line, Mary sings with awe that all generations, all generations from this point forward are going to call her blessed. That's a big claim. What does Mary mean by blessed? In our culture, feeling hashtag blessed means makes people use it on Facebook all the time. They post pictures of themselves going on really nice holidays or enjoying really good meals and they tag them, hashtag blessed. For us, in our culture, blessed means something like living a life of privilege and comfort. But the blessedness that Mary experiences is very, very different to this. In Scripture, the verb blessed is about the joy, the distinctive joy 
that comes through being a part of God's people and participating in God's work. It's the joy that comes from being involved in God's plans. And now, we also just need to stop and note that being blessed, it's not about doing lots of things for God. It's not about, you know, doing this and that, and then therefore God will bless you. There's a difference between doing things for God and God using you. And in verse 49, Mary tells us how her blessedness was brought about by God, not by anything that she did. Mary sings, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And so we see that all of Mary's focus in her song is on what God has done for her. God sees her. God is mindful of her. God has favoured her. And God has involved her in his plans. He has chosen her for a very important role, which has historical significance. And so Mary's role in God's plan, it plays out in a few ways. So firstly, the obvious thing is that Mary is the mother of Jesus. Gabriel tells Mary that she, has cho- she was chosen for the role of bearing the Most High, the Davidic King of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah. And of course, you can imagine, that that's a great honour. Mary goes from having no family worth mentioning by Luke to actually being supplanted into the line of the Messiah. It's quite amazing. But there's other ways, which are maybe a little less unexpected, that God works through Mary, ways that we often overlook. And they challenge our conception that we often have of Mary as being a silent, meek, mild, obedient um, girl. Luke paints her as a great figure of faith. Remember that Mary believes God when this righteous priest, Zachariah, who you'd expect to believe God, failed to believe. And Mary is also really important for what she has to say. Her voice is crucial in Luke's gospel. Luke uses her song to explain her pregnancy to explain Jesus's miraculous conception. So let's be clear. The significance of the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel is first explained by a woman. That's pretty amazing. We've, we know that there, before this, there'd been 100, 400 years of silence from God. His words then come to us, not in the voice of, you know, someone like Zachariah, an old graying guy, but in the voice of a young teenage girl. It's pretty amazing. And her voice is now recorded by Luke to instruct Christians for all generations so that we sit here today and we read it and talk about it. Let that sink in. That in itself is completely revolutionary, even in our time, but you can imagine how revolutionary that would be in Luke's time. So God has revolutionized Mary's status. He has given her honor 
by giving her a central role in his plans. In the eyes of the world around her, Mary was lowly, humiliated, a nobody, but God turns it all on its head and he uses her. He does great things for her. And so Mary tells us in her song that God has taken her from lowliness and he has thrusted her right into the very heart of the events that are going to become the centre of all of history. You could say that really, in a way, there's no one who's, who is ever closer to Jesus than Mary. She is now one of the key people from whom God has accomplished his purposes for all history. And so I wonder, would we choose someone like Mary for such an important role? When I was a kid, one of my favourite movies growing up was Ocean's Eleven. Do you know Ocean's Eleven? Yep. It's the heist movie where Danny Ocean, you know, he's going to carry out this amazing bank heist. And what I loved most were the scenes when Danny Ocean pulled together his specialist team, his crew. Um, and you'd have this montage of, of him recruiting strong guys who can kick down doors, weapons experts, tech gurus, um, you know, people with great charisma who had the art of, you know, trickery. But Danny Ocean doesn't choose anyone like Mary for his team. And in church, sometimes I think we often preference the gifted people, the talented people, the people with good jobs, with lots of skills. But the revolution that God brings for Mary and through Mary reminds us that anyone who fears God can be called a servant of God. It reminds us that God doesn't follow human strategies. It reminds us that God doesn't think it's that important to use the most powerful people possible. It reminds us that God has a special knack for using people who've been excluded um, because of their ability or gender or ethnicity or whatever it is. So that's the first revolution. Um, God changes Mary's status. But Mary's song is not just about what God does for Mary alone. In the second stanza of the song, in the second portion, Mary widens out her focus to all who will be impacted by her pregnancy. She thinks that her pregnancy is going to revolutionise her community and nation. Through her pregnancy, God is going to bring revolution to all of Israel. He's going to transform Israel's status. So why does Israel need revolution? Well, like Mary, Israel finds itself in a very vulnerable position at this time in history. And Luke is very careful to um, make sure that his story, um, it's clear that his story is happening during a very low point for Israel. And so in verses 5 of chapter 1, he says that Herod the Great is on the throne. And Herod, he was a puppet ruler that was set up by the Romans, as I'm sure most of us know. So Israel is under the boot 
of the Romans, which is not a nice place to be at all, by the way. The Romans were brutal conquerors and they maintained their war machine, which conquered with harsh taxation, which impoverished the people that they conquered. And so I read somewhere that 98% of people who lived in the Roman Empire were impoverished and especially in these you know, outlying areas like Israel. But Israel is used to being under the boot of foreign rulers at this point in history. Before Rome, they had suffered under Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and then the Greeks. So Israel had been in a very low place for a very, very long time at this point. And yet before all of this, in Genesis 12 and 22, God makes an unconditional promise to Abraham who was one of the founders of Israel. He says, God promised in Genesis that Abraham, his descendants, would be made a great nation. God promises that he would bless them and protect them. And God promises that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as this story in the Bible of foreign occupation and oppression progresses, another story is running alongside it. And Israel's prophets give prophecy after prophecy, anticipating a Messiah. This would be a king connected to David who would fulfill, finally, Abraham's, the promise God made to Abraham and would deliver Israel from their distresses. And so at this point in history, the people of Israel, they are yearning for this promise of God to be fulfilled. The promise that God would someday place the Messiah on Israel's throne and then establish justice and peace and righteousness. And then as we come to the end of the Old Testament, like I mentioned before, there's this period of silence for 400 years. We don't hear peep from God. And so we're left wondering, has God forgotten? Has God forgotten his promise to Abraham? Has he abandoned Israel? And it's starting to look really impossible. They are now under the boot of, you know, the most um, intense empire that the world's ever seen. But then Mary comes along and she bursts out with her song. In the second stanza of the song, Mary makes an extraordinary claim. She declares that her pregnancy is actually the fulfillment of Israel's hope for a Messiah who would fulfill God's promises to Abraham. That's definitely quite an extraordinary pregnancy announcement. A little bit more than just an Instagram post. So look at what Mary declares in verses 50 and then in verses uh, 54 to 55. These two groups of verses, they frame the second stanza of the song and they set the theme. In verse 50, Mary says that God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this then connects to verses 54 and 55, where Mary says that God has helped Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
and promises to Abraham. And so when, is, when Scripture talks about God's mercy, it's referring to God's covenant love. It refers to his active faithfulness to his promises. And so when Mary sings that God has remembered his mercy to Abraham, she is saying that God is dedicated to his promises, that he will fulfill them. And she's singing that through her pregnancy. God is fulfilling what he promised to do for Abraham. He hasn't forgotten. Mary believes that, you know, this deliverance from domination, which Israel had hoped for, is dawning in her pregnancy. The revolution's begun. Her baby will be the Messiah. So what did Mary expect God to accomplish through his, this Messiah? What's this revolution going to look like? Well, in verses 51 to 54, which are framed by those verses about God's mercy and faithfulness, Mary prophesies that her pregnancy is going to revolutionize Israel's fortunes. In verse 51, she introduces the implications for Israel and she sings that through her pregnancy, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And this is a, it's actually an, a reference to the Exodus. It's a phrase that's used often referring to the Exodus. She says that through her pregnancy, God is going to bring something so pivotal in Israel's history that it will be like the Exodus. Just as God has redeemed Israel from the clutches of Egypt, he's also going to free Israel again once and for all. Her baby is going to overturn the oppression that Israel is experiencing. Her baby is going to take Israel from a low place to a high place. And then Mary sings about the details of God's revolutionary intervention in the next phrases. She says that through her pregnancy, God is going to scatter the proud and help Israel. He's going to bring down the powers from their thrones and lift up the lowly. He's going to empty the rich and fill the hungry. And of course, it's obvious that these revolutionary acts are good news for lowly people. But what are the implications for the powerful and wealthy people? Well, we need to keep in mind that these actions and reversals, they're all framed within those lines about God's mercy. All of this is about God's mercy. God's humbling of the proud, the powerful and the merciful uh, and the rich, sorry, is a merciful and redemptive act. Pride, power, possessions, they're not good for the human heart. And so God, in his mercy, strips them away. One commentary I read said that God flings the proud of heart to the earth in the hope that they will be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. And as a church in the Adelaide Hills in a Western country, I think there's a danger that we as Hills Baptists can easily become high and mighty. There's a danger that we hide 
a pursuit of, of pride, of power and possession in, in spiritual sounding kind of disguises. So for instance, we might take the pursuit of power and call it something like cultural influence. We convince ourselves that we were, we're going to change the culture by hobnobbing with the people who have power and influence. We rub shoulders just with other upper middle class people like ourselves. We build our church brand and all of that. But we neglect the messy, hurting people who don't offer us anything. And I think then there's also a a temptation to take something like the pursuit of possessions and call it financial security, pursuit for financial security or prudence. And of course, good stewardship is really important for churches. But if we're always on this, just this quest for a healthy financial position, that can suck out the creativity, the life, the willingness to do radical and generous things out of, out of churches. So let's pray that when we get high and mighty, which there is a temptation that we will, God in his mercy would strip away our pretense. Let's pray that God would expose the pride in our hearts, that he would expose the pursuit of power and possessions for what it is. And let's pray that God would change our hearts this Christmas. So to get back on track, Mary thinks that her pregnancy is going to lift up the lowly and bring down the powerful to earth. She has really high hopes for a kid. Lots of pressure on this kid. And as Luke's gospel progresses, though, what we see is that Mary's hopes actually aren't misplaced at all. These revolutionary things, they actually happen. And so Mary's statements about these reversals where the the poor are lifted up, the rich are brought down, they foreshadow what actually happens throughout Luke's gospel. As things progress, though, you know, these reversals, they don't really play out how we might expect. You might be thinking at this point that there's going to come this big fight, a big war where Israel triumphs over Rome as the underdog and then establishes its kingdom Um, and rules just with as much kind of, you know, anger and vengeance that Rome did. But Luke's gospel, it turns our expectations upside down. It turns our expectations upside down when Mary's special baby is born in a feed trough, not in a palace. Our expectations are turned upside down when this future king grows up in humble circumstances His parents dedicate him in the temple. When they do that, they give the offering that's reserved for poor people. Pretty interesting. And then these expectations are turned upside down when Jesus teaches his followers not to fight their enemies, but to love their enemies and to turn the other cheek. And then ultimately, our expectations are turned upside down when this Messiah, Jesus, dies in order to save his people from death. Jesus rides into Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be killed, not on a war horse or a chariot, but on a humble donkey. And you might make the mistake that Jesus has failed in his purposes, but the Israel's Messiah 
He has succeeded in what he came to do. It's just that his life, death, death and resurrections, they have implications that go far deeper than what we could have imagined. Israel's Messiah does so much more than save Israel from one bad empire. His work goes way, way, way deeper than that. He actually frees Israel from the twisted human values that create evil empires in the first place. He knows that at the heart of this pride, power-seeking pursuit of, of possessions lies the power of sin and death. And on the cross, he crushes the power that sin and death have over human arts. And so this great act of revolution for Israel, it doesn't overthrow the Romans with military might. It overturns the empire from the inside out. It inaugurates a new, renewed people of God within the empire who are marching to Mary's tune. It's a people characterised by a new way of being human, where their values have been, you know, completely shifted, where the hungry are fed and the powerless are lifted up. So that's the second revolution. And to finish up, we're going to look at the third revolution that we can see in Mary's song. So we've looked at the revolution that God brings to Mary, as well as the revolution that God brings to Israel. And so at this point, you might be wondering, where on earth, how do we fit into all of this? You might be wondering, I'm not a teenage girl from the Middle East and I'm not part of Israel. Where do I fit? Well, the revolution that God accomplishes through Mary's pregnancy, it's not just for Mary and it's not just for Israel. Mary's song, it actually gives us these little hints throughout that this revolution is going to spread to the whole world. Mary sings in verse 50 that God's mercy will embrace all generations of people who honour God. And her reference to God's promise to Abraham, it reminds us that the blessing was meant to always extend to all the nations of the earth. And so this then becomes another key element throughout the Gospel of Luke and even into his second book of Acts. Throughout Luke and Acts, we see that although salvation comes from Israel, it spills over through Jesus to the rest of the world. And so in Luke 2, Jesus' parents present Jesus in the temple um, after he's born and a righteous man named um, Simeon who was waiting um, for the Messiah, he snacks, seems like he just snatches Jesus and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then in Luke 24 too, Jesus appears to his disciples after his revelation and he, he opens, says he opens up their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations 
beginning from Jerusalem. And then in Acts 2, this theme it continues as well. So Jesus ascends to heaven. And after, oh, before, sorry, he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we know how Acts continues. We, we know that this gospel goes out into the whole world. The revolution spreads. It begins with Mary, it moves to Israel, and then it transforms the whole wide world. Mary's pregnancy is an act of God's mercy and blessing for the whole world, fulfilling the mandate that God, the promise that God gave to Abraham. And so Jesus doesn't just overthrow the power and sin and death for Israel. He overthrows it so that all people, including us here today, who call upon his name can be saved and grafted into God's family. Mary's song reminds us that we are part of God's plan for his people, which started back with Abraham. And so this Christmas, to finish up, between the sentimental Christmas carols, which are great, reflect on the amazing revolution that God has accomplished through Mary's pregnancy. Let Mary's song ring in your ears, in your hearts and in your soul. And if you are lowly, if you struggle with grief or loneliness at Christmas, if you have experienced abuse in your life, if you feel weak and ineffectual, remember that God lifts the lowly to places of blessing and honour. Remember how he revolutionised Mary's status. Remember how he overcame Israel's oppression. Remember that God does not forget his promises. Remember that God won't leave justice undone. And so if that's you, I pray that you would discover in, mercy, in Mary's wonderful song, powerful words of hope, because God delights in taking us who are insignificant in the eyes of the world and lifting us up. Now, if you're a little bit high and mighty and privileged, like most of us are here, Christmas is also a time for recalibration. Remember that what the world values most, things like status, pride, power and possessions are worthless in God's kingdom. Remember that God humbles the proud, throws down the rulers and empties the rich as an incredible act of His mercy. And remember that we are grafted into God's people and that our authority doesn't come from power and might, but from identifying with people on the fringes like Jesus did. And so whether you're lowly or mighty, as you remember Mary's song this Christmas, let your heart be stirred to join with all of God's people and march to Mary's tune. Mary's song summons us to take Jesus' message of blessing and liberation everyone around us 
And it summons us to join in God's work of raising up the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed of the world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much um, for your love for us. Yeah, thank you um, for Mary's song, um, which has been recorded um, for all history, for us to read and reflect on. Lord, I pray that you would, yeah, work in our hearts this Christmas. If we're feeling lowly, if we, you know, struggling with various things like grief, loneliness, whatever it may be, Lord, pray that you would give us the unexplainable joy that comes from being a part of your people and purposes. And God, if we are a little bit too high and mighty, I pray that you would be, um, you know, poking at us a bit, helping us to recalibrate, um, helping us to remember that, um, yeah, power, privilege, all those things really don't have any currency in your kingdom, Lord. And yeah, we pray that this Christmas season would be a time of blessing for all of us, that we would remember what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you came for us, that you died for us, um, that you have shown your great love for us. Lord, thank you that you became low so that we could be lifted up. And I pray that that would become the pattern of our lives too. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.